welcome to the UC Architects, the world's best Exchange and Link podcast. Uh, this episode is recorded live from Las Vegas at Exchange Connections, and I'm joined today by some very special guests. So let's go down the line. Okay, uh, I'm Michael. I'm also one of the UC Architects, and um, I'm happy to be here. John Rodriguez with Microsoft. Johan Valdach, also a member of the UC Architects. Tony Revan, who doesn't know what he's doing here. <laughs> Jeff Miller with Microsoft. Greg Taylor from Microsoft, who also doesn't know why Tony is here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the audience, if, if you've got any questions later on, we'll be doing some panel questions where you can ask Greg, Tony, and the rest of the Microsoft guys your questions, and hopefully get some great answers uh, for the listeners at home. Uh, but first up, uh, we're going to go through some of the big announcements, and... Mech is back. Yes, you're at a conference now, so hopefully we've got some fans of conference goers here. Uh, the Microsoft Exchange Conference is open for registration if you're looking for your next fix of Exchange goodness. Uh, so get signing up. Uh, a few of the UC architects have already signed up, so we'll be there. Uh, and it's in Austin, Texas next year. Uh, so, Microsoft guys, anyone got any great snippets for what people can expect to see there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean... Uh, okay, certainly, I'll have a go. So, um, I mean, Mech is, uh, I'm not going to be able to give you any, any specific details. We're still in the early planning stages. But, I mean, Mech is, the, will be the event where we're covering exchange from both an on-premises and a cloud perspective and a hybrid perspective. And, you know, give you the chance, like with the last Mech, to hear about the, the latest thoughts, plans, and ideas from the people who are actually creating the code, you know, writing the specs, and producing the code. So I think it's the, definitely the one event where you can get as close to the exchange team as you possibly can. Is that a good idea? I ask myself. Well, <laughs> I think for the most part it is a good idea. Yeah, I mean, these are the guys. You can ask them the question. It's not just these aren't, I mean, in the last mech, it wasn't just um, presentation-based. There was a lot of free-flowing discussion-based uh, sessions. And, you know, and as with all things mech, there's always a good after uh, conference presentation hours kind of fun. Uh, you know, there's always a lot going on at the conference as well. So you've got plenty of time to talk to the, the guys that are doing the presentations and ask them all the questions that you don't think they cover during the presentation. You don't get many opportunities to do that. It's the type of conference where you ask a question and all of a sudden the developer pops his laptop out and says, I don't know, let me look at the code. Let's figure it out. So, yeah, it's very cool, very valuable. So why hasn't Microsoft run it in the last eight months? If it's so cool and com comfortable. Well, I mean, you know, I think, you know, why don't we run it like every month? Every year. <laughs> well, I mean, we could run it every month, but frankly, I'm not... You would have a new presentation not, to give every month, Well, I, I just recycle the, them on a regular monthly basis, but I think, I mean, uh, you know, big conferences like that, they're, uh, they're big investments for people to come to them as well, so we appreciate that. And there are, there are other events. This is another great event where... You know, people with exchange focus come to these kind of events, and there's only so many of these that we, you know, all of us can pack into a into a calendar year. So, I think with Mech, we've we've certainly tried to take the approach more where we'd rather do the conference when we have something big and interesting to talk about, rather than just do it by a calendar basis. And the big and interesting thing that's going to happen is. I well, that would right that now. would be telling. But no, but I mean, you know, we can speculate on what that might be, though. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, but no, I mean, think about. I mean, this is you know, this is an opportunity to hear about the kind of work we're doing and, and what we're thinking about the changing nature of email and, and in the IT industry, right? So, I mean, mobility and, and and social connected email and all of these kind of things are trends which are which are 
which are constantly evolving. And so you, you'll get to hear from, from the Exchange team and the Office 365 team uh, the latest thoughts and plans they have around all those kind of areas. And, and it's, there won't be many other opportunities. You know, there aren't a great deal of opportunities to get that, those kind of presenters being that open and candid and, and able to give you share that kind of information. I'd say it's also a great opportunity to give feedback to those people as well. Um, that's really where we get a lot of our value from it, um, speaking for the engineering team. It's a great opportunity to hear what's working, what's not, and how we, how we think about making changes. And this one's for Tony. In the context of Exchange Connections, do you see a future for conferences like this uh, now Mech is back? Uh, we know Mech is only when there's something to share. Yes, um, I think you've got to distinguish between a conference that's run by a vendor and a conference that's independent. And a conference that's run by a vendor, by its very nature, has got a number of attributes. Uh, clearly, there's a marketing side of it, uh, because the Microsoft guys, I think you'd admit, you want to create some excitement and buzz around exchange. For whatever, sure. And, and Office Absolutely. Yeah. And, all that. And, and that's to be anticipated. So you're going to have the uh, massive keynotes. You're going to have a whole pile of uh, other sessions behind it to try and build momentum. And essentially, at the end of the day, what Microsoft wants to do is to make people adopt new technology faster than perhaps people really want to. But that's, that's just the way it, it works. So an independent conference, something like IT Dev Connections or Exchange Connections, which is a subsection of that, I think it has a place in the industry because it's an independent voice. Uh, we can put Microsoft guys on the, on the agenda, and we'd be very happy to have them. Uh, I think they've made a, a good contribution. But at the same time, we have a lot of MVPs, we have a lot of, a lot of independent experts who really are there to tell you the way the technology works in practice, how it works in the field, what are the pitfalls and the, uh, and the, the areas that you can really get into trouble in projects. Uh, and I'm not sure that, you know, and we can also cover competitive situations such the alternatives to um, Office 365. I'm not sure, for example, that anybody submitting a, uh, a session to Mech saying why you should why you should migrate to Google Apps would possibly have a good chance of being accepted. Do you think you get anyone attending the session? <laughs> the exchange conference? There are a few people. No, I mean, there are a few people in Mountain View who would like okay, to do that. Okay, fair enough. But I mean, I, I mean, people are will, uh, welcome to submit sessions like that. That's the reality. So I mean, I, I totally agree with your point about um, you know an independent um, uh, conference like this is great. We're here to support it, and um, yeah, you know we're all yeah. on board. But Mech is also open to the MVP community and MCMs and other field people to 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 offer up sessions and well, offer I, that perspective. I, so certainly, we'll, certainly we'll, do our, we'll do our, you know, um, marketing, you know, driven, you know, or, or kind of, you know, our, our product information or stuff that we want to get across. Yeah, yeah. But, then we, but then it's open game for lots of other yeah, sessions. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, Greg, that you, Microsoft invested a large sum of money to run that. Yeah. Is any large conference costs oh, yeah. several million dollars to put on. Sure. So... For that, you've got to see uh, return. Yep. And, uh, and everybody knows that's the way the game is played. In the same way, for a conference like this one to stay successful and to stay in business, it has to establish an independent ethos. It's got to have, sure. it can't be a, a mini mech, son of mech, perhaps mech, wannabe mech, or any of the other type mechs. It's got to be absolutely independent of mech. Gotcha. And so, therefore, it's got to have its own ethos and its own way of communicating information. 
Now, I agree with you that there is cross-fertilization insofar as uh, Microsoft people come here, non-Microsoft people will, will appear at Mech. And that's goodness, because that's the way the ecosystem works. And exchange has always prospered because it's been had a good ecosystem. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the two conferences won't have very different perspectives at times. No, I think, it, I think it's great. It gives, the, uh, you know, it gives people who want to attend an opportunity to pick and choose and ideally go to both. So why go to Austin? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I've never been there. Oh, the Tex-Mex, Tony. It's a Tex-Mex. Is that a... Is somebody on the exchange the marketing team got a hankering for Tex-Mex? Is that what it's down to? And the barbecue. Great barbecue. So, <laughs> two great reasons to go to Mech. Yeah. So, uh, one thing attendees at this conference will have noticed, there's a lot more Office 365 sessions than in previous years. And that was, that was partly driven by you because we see that in the market. Yeah. Uh, it's an exchange conference, but that is, there's a lot of exchange online. Now... Where does that leave on-premises exchange long-term with this rush to the cloud? <laughs> Is that a question to me? That's a question to anybody. Who no. wants to, you, everyone here has got an opinion on that, and I, I'm sure in the audience uh, on where that might be. Where, where do you see it? So should we start with the UC architects? Yeah, why not? They're, they're, not, yeah. they're staying very quiet today. Well, Michael, Ma- shy, reserved Ma- bunch. Michael, along with myself, <laughs> we do a lot of exchange online migrations. Most of my work is moving customers to Office 365, but we love exchange on-premises. So we, we see things changing. So where, where do you think that's going to be? That's a good question, an interesting question, though. Um, we've had our fair share of uh, Office 365 migrations over the past year, and... Um, it leaves me wondering, uh, in the long term, where is exchange on-premises fitting in? Um, I, I truly believe there is a, a, a future um, still for on-premises organizations, although that will change. Um, I heard someone say the other day, I don't know who he was, um, that we're evolving to a sort of, you know, the, the next version of exchange might be an enabler for the cloud, a sort of proxy for the cloud um, stuff. And, and it's an interesting theory, and, and, and I might think there there might be something to it. Um, so from my point of view, I, I'd, I'd very much like to see what's happening. I think the, the exchanges we see today, you know, really having mailboxes and premises, is something that we'll, we'll likely not see in, in, in a few years from now, whether that will be in... You think so? I think so. I'm not talking in two years. You know, that won't change, given that people are still running Exchange 2003, which is 10 years old. It, it'll at least take 10, 15 years Till we see something really dra- dramatically change. But I see a lot of future in hybrid environments. Uh, most of the things that I've been doing is hybrid anyway. You know, what you can pull into the cloud. Yeah, sure. What's the average size customers you work with? Just for the mic, what's the average size customers you work with? Yeah, well, it's very, very various. I've had small customers ranging from a few hundred to larger customers uh, over a few thousand, up to, I think, even 50, 60,000 that are going hybrid. So I think it's affecting everyone. Um, not sure about the really big ones. Uh, over in Europe, we don't really have that. So, Oh, come on. Oh, well, come on. The, the biggest ones are not that big. Oh, you do have a few. I've worked. We have yeah. a few. Come on. Yeah, there's a couple, like 200,000 kind of mailbox seats. A couple? Seats. There's yeah. One, there's, there's one with 1.2 million somewhere in the Yeah, we were talking about yeah. that yeah. last night. Right. It helps so, keep, well, you, keep you well. Yeah. yeah. So... Not that many. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you come from Belgium. It's a very small country. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. Most famous for beer, chocolate, and lace. And waffles. Oh, yeah. Waffles. So that summarizes And waffles. In yeah. the European yeah. Yeah. Union. Fridges. Johan. And fridges. Yeah. I, I think, fridges. I think you've got a good opinion on this as well. <laughs> yeah, I think. Because your technology focus has changed entirely, hasn't it? Mm. Wow. 
Not really, but I'm looking at both exchange and links. So. Exactly. You're doing a lot more link than you used yeah. to. So you, do you, is that because you see the skills you need changing? Well, well, not really, but there's, yeah, there's sometimes you, may, you must make decisions that yeah. you want to change from field from a change to link because there are more jobs to do or more projects to do with link. And I think both products can integrate together perfectly. But if you think about what you just said, what you're really saying is that you went from being an exchange engineer to a communications or a messaging engineer. Yeah. And that's really what you're doing, right? Yeah. In the end, it's all about the solution. It's about communications, it's various types. Yeah. Email can be considered not necessarily real-time, but near-time. Yeah. I send you an email, you read it at some point in the future. But if I'm doing link, I'm connecting to you right now. Yeah. You're there or you're not there. Yeah. And the communication changes. So it's all communications, broadly speaking. It's yes. just different forms. And you cover all of them now. Yes, that's true. I figured I'm not here for decorative purposes. I should say something. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, you could talk about modern public folders. I, I could talk about modern public folders. But that would be boring. Well, and most of them have sat through it, and so I don't want to torture them a third time. Oh, that's Thank good you. of you. Thank you, John. I'm a kind heart. You are. That's, a, that's a fur, further down, yeah. I, mean, Carry on, yeah. I think Michael makes a great point, which I think is hybrid is probably where we see a lot of customers. Uh, moving towards today is the one toe in the cloud. You know, they want to give it a try, right? Some customers, I mean, it's like, like all things. I mean, there are, in all things in, in, in consumer IT or whatever it may be, everyone rushes out and buys the newest device. And then and that may be those that initially move to the cloud. And then things become more mainstream and people get, you know, the, the, the products become better and the price becomes more appropriate for customers and then they get on board. And I think, I think we've certainly seen that initial excitement of a lot of our customers who just went wholeheartedly for the cloud and I think for small medium business it makes a way more sense you know lots of good great reasons for doing it I think the larger customers who have other more complex requirements you know maybe um, uh, you know legislation or particular kind of um, you know data security requirements then it'll be a slower transition but I think over time um, you know, our goal is to try and build confidence in what we're offering and adapt our offering so that what we're giving them is appropriate. But I, I kind of feel like it's a, a long-term inevitability for most every customer. Most every. Well, right? Not perhaps. I mean, not all. I, and there are some, you know... That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Well, you know, I mean... Well, you put a time frame on it. Michael was talking about 15 years. Where, 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 where are you at? Gosh, I... Um, I would say... Ten years or under. Ten years or Ten under. Ten years under. You know, I, I, I struggle to see the, the, the value why the majority of enterprise organizations, I'm not talking about organizations that are security constrained or have other kind of considerations, That's right? Harbor, but the, the vast majority of companies for whom, you know, security or, 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 or certain, uh, you know, constraints that they have don't apply, I think it makes a whole lot more sense. I, I think that... Uh, between now and whatever that time frame is, there's going to be a lot more customers who aren't necessarily doing what we think of as traditional hybrid, but have some piece of their messaging infrastructure or their communications infrastructure in the cloud. Not necessarily the full-on hybrid solution we're talking about, but you know, messaging hygiene, that, that type of thing, maybe that's a piece of the puzzle that you, know, you are comfortable uh, putting in the cloud if you're not comfortable having all of your data sitting in the cloud. And there will be opportunities for other things like that to, to move without, without moving everything. 
yeah. effectively. So I, I think it'll be a slow transition. I think it'll be a. Um, it, I, I do I, agree with Greg that I think that is where we're going across the board. But IT moves slowly. I mean, look yeah. at Windows XP. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, IT moves slowly. Here's a great example of, oh, I think, IT moving slowly and where this fits in. Take a customer who's on Exchange 2003 today, right? So I, I've had this discussion a few times. A customer who's on Exchange 2003 today is a perfect cloud customer. And the reason for that is if you, they obviously don't really care about being up to date with the technology. The, the, the fact that, you know, they're 10 years out of date, they don't care that much. They're in the business of making cupcakes or pencils or whatever the heck it is, yeah. right? IT is just a supporting function for them to do their business. If you upgrade them to 2010, 2013 today, in 10 years' time, they will be on Exchange 2010 or 2013. And you have the same problem in 10 years from now. Um, and so a customer like that is a great cloud customer because you eliminate IT from them for you know, something they have to manage and update and look after you take it out of the equation and let them get on with their business. So why then doesn't Microsoft not facilitate those guys going to the cloud better? Because, for example, they need a hybrid server. What would you suggest they use? Magic Beans instead? Magic I mean, Beans I'm would not be so good. Sure. Could, you, could you give us some? I don't have any. I'm right out of Magic Beans at the moment. But, I mean, I, if not a hybrid, what, what are you thinking we could do? No, I'm just thinking that the migration for some of those customers tends to be a bit Well, I mean... Standard. So the challenge with each release. It does get better release. Right? It, it does. To be fair, it does, does. Which is an important reason why customers, you know, keeping customers up to date, keep them moving forward, will make transitions in the future easier for us and for them. And so then, the, you know, uh, popping a hybrid server into an existing environment for which we have a hybrid license that they don't even have to pay for that enables them to then coexist and move mailboxes between the two, I think is a pretty pretty awesome solution for solving the problem. Um, I'm not sure what alternative solution you're thinking of. Greg, uh, one, one question that I wonder whether you get a lot is could collaboration be better uh, between on-premises and the cloud? The sharing, always, federated sharing, calendar It could always be better. It can always be, uh, yeah. Do you get absolutely. a lot of customers asking for that? Because I, I can't really ask about I don't. Like, okay, so let me put it this way: they don't ask it as vaguely as that. Right? They just like, could it be better? Yes, Mr. Customer, it could be better, right? Well, it could, the, but, the question but, from a customer might be: I need it to work. Right. Well, there are scenarios that they really need to work. That's what it comes yeah. down to, right? The, the scenario is: I want to be have a manager delegate relationship where one half is on prem and one is in the cloud. For example, that would be a scenario that we would think about. And so it's it. You know, working with developers who are quite binary in nature, you have to be a little bit more precise in the scenarios you're trying to accomplish and the conditions under which they, you know, have to, to be within rather than just make it better. Make it better to a developer's like, you know, that's a, rough, that's a tough question. You know, I learned a long, long time ago, don't ask a developer. If a, if a developer, if you ask him a question and he can't answer a, a numerical question to five decimal places, he just doesn't want to answer it because it's just too imprecise for him, you see. But I, I think, yeah, it could be better. There's a ton of people working to, to make it better, but, they, but we've tended to move into more of a scenario, something we call scenario-focused engineering, which is instead of just um, throwing features and, and, and you know, extra little buttons and whizzes here and there, we, think about, we try to think about the end-to-end -end scenario for what it is you're trying to achieve, and then the solution is, or the, the code change is developed to 
to make that solution possible rather than just changing lots of little bits. And what that means as well is that uh, an engineering team who own a scenario, they'll change bits of the product up and down the stack. Whereas in the old days, it used to be when we were very product unit focused, transport, mailbox, client access, you know, if you had a scenario that required making changes at all of those servers, you'd have to coordinate three teams. And through testing. Three, and, 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 and that was really hard. And so, so when you have a more of a scenario-focused approach, where the dev and test and P, PM dev and test teams work for the scenario across all the server roles, it, it delivers a much better end-to-end solution with less gaps and joints. That's the hope. So we're at a conference with a lot of people who are hoping to learn more about Exchange. What kind of skills do people think you'll need as an Exchange admin over the next two to five years? Where should you focus your efforts? Tell me. Yeah. Should, so, we, should read Tony's book. That'd be a great yes. start. No, don't, don't read any books, no. Um, I think the first thing is that people have got to be flexible because the one thing that you could be guaranteed with about technology is that it's going to change. And uh, just as Johan was saying that he's getting involved in Link, I think anybody who's just a pure exchange administrator today and just stays focused on pure exchange has got their head buried very deeply into the sand and is hoping that something, that all this bad stuff's going to pass them by. But, you know, as we just discussed, the cloud is going to happen. And for a lot, I, I, I agree. I, I think any small to medium businesses who are running Exchange 20, 2003 today, they, they should go to the cloud as quickly as they could get there because it is a solution for a lot of the problems they have. I think any company that's starting up today uh, and wants to install an Exchange server should be shot unless that they are uh, in the business of producing something that works with email and need an Exchange server. I'm going to so, edit that out. Huh? I'm going to edit that it's out. Gone. <laughs> Is that going to be? Oh, okay. Tony <laughs> says customers should be shocked. No, well, no maybe, the, maybe just the admins. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> just wing them slightly. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's uh, like it would be an act of kindness for some of them. <laughs> Do you want to edit that out? Anyway, I'm just going to be, I'm going to edit all the bit out about not installing Exchange on premise. No, I mean, uh, no, but the point I'm going to bury my head. Uh, no, the point is, it's like it's so much simpler to go and take out an Office 365 subscription, six bucks a month, for two or three people in a startup, than saying, okay, let's let's get an Exchange 2013 server up and running, because that's it's just madness. But none of these folks in the room work for two, th- two or three person yeah, startups. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. Well, I wasn't, wasn't going there, John. I mean, the, but the point. Nobody here just does exchange. I, yeah, but the point is, is that I think people have got to be ultra flexible as they go forward, and if. The decision is made by the organization to go into Office 365, either in a hybrid mode or a switchover, whatever it is. They are going to have to look at the new skills and, and new capabilities that are exposed to them. I mean, one example is SharePoint. Now, SharePoint on premises is a product that only its mother could like. It's complex, it's convoluted, it's horrible. I hate it with a vengeance. But you know what? <laughs> SharePoint Online. Because Microsoft takes care of all the, the horrible stuff behind the scenes, is actually quite nice because at the end of the day, you get to do all the good stuff and Microsoft gets to do all the bad stuff. So that seems like a pretty good deal. And do we have any it, SharePoint admins in the room, by the way? I, I don't so. care if there are. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just, just telling you the way I say it. I think the SharePoint on-premise on, on is horrible. So the point is, though, 
And the positive thing is that you, could, you then have an opportunity to look at SharePoint again, where you wouldn't have said, no, I'm not going to set up all those farms and all that other stuff that they want. It's available to me. I'm already paying for it as part of my subscription. So how am I going to use SharePoint to get some business benefits out of it? That seems to be a very good thing. And I think an exchange admin who's making a move over, who's suddenly got you know, some time in their hands because they're not doing the mundane stuff like doing backups and all the rest of it, they should now look at getting involved in backups. Backups, yes. You remember what those are? Who does backups? Yeah. I do. Wow. Because I'm paranoid. Clearly. Yes. And we Somebody have it on tape. <laughs> yes, and you have it on tape. So there you go. But, the, you know, to, to finish this thing with that interruption. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, you're really I want to interrupt you. If, if, they, if they just seize that opportunity to become more of a valued person within the organization because they have extra skills, they have extra talents, they're able to leverage the investment that the company's already made, they're able to drive business improvement. Well, now, all of a sudden, there is no question whatsoever in the long-term job prospects of such an individual. On the other hand, if you've got a traditional exchange admin who just you know, complains a lot because you've gone to Office 365 and now all they've got to do is move mailboxes around... You know, that's a job that's very easily replaced. You know, that, is, that job could very well go away sometime very soon. I, I think it's fair to say that identity management mm -hmm. that's a great, is a yeah. great huge, uh, a huge area of growth for, uh, you know, needing, needing those skills for managing cloud yep. environments. Hybrid, so it's, you know, directory, critical. Active services. Yeah, ADS, DirSync, yeah. all those pieces. Security. Security is also super important. Absolutely. It's not only these things because that's the additional thing well, um, like federation it's, it's very important but even within the products themselves um, typically change admins have been uh, focusing on architecture high availability and those continue to be very important and, and uh, popular topics but once we get closer to being more in the cloud these kind of topics become less important I mean architecture is still there and it's still an important part but it will be a less important part than it is today um, having skills within Exchange that rely more or relate more to the hybrid functionality, um, yeah. and yeah, I think that's, that's 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 quite important. Actually, knowing what it is doing, how it is working, and what you need to make these things work is is where you should focus, especially when you're looking at, at the entire cloud architecture. It's it's good to know how to build a high, highly available infrastructure, but if you're going to run it in the cloud, what's the point in actually knowing all the bits and the pieces because you're not doing that anymore. Well, I, I don't think those those skills or those those thoughts go away. They change, right? You still care about high availability, and sure. that could involve thinking about how you're how you're connecting to that cloud mm -hmm. infrastructure, right? And that that may just be a, a different different pivot on the, the you know, same type of concerns you had previously. So yeah, it doesn't entirely go away. So. Absolutely. So I think that takes us on to, especially with the architecture discussion. Is there a need for top-level training for products like Exchange? John, you're a PFE. You work with customers. <laughs> and you do workshops, give them some advanced skills. John, would you like to pass any commentary about the general level of competence in the calls that you get? Oh, I'm not on the phone, I'm not in the phone queues. I'm actually on site. So yeah. generally speaking, the, the level of... Uh, the level of knowledge is usually situation-specific. So... The vast majority of people are very good at the exact things that their customer has, yeah. so or that their company has. So, a uh, an engineer at a company that has 
three Active Directory sites and connectors between them, knows quite a bit about that, but if they don't have OA, they're usually, they, they know very little about it. So they tend to be good at the things that they do and completely oblivious of anything that the company doesn't. So an, so an overall level, in, yeah. very inconsistent. So what you're really alluding to is, is the, the yeah. idea of a top-level certification. Do you need to be better than MCSE messaging? Depends, so, on what you're, depends on what your long-term MCSE, goals are. Or MCITP Office 361. Is that the top sort of level skills that people need going forward? It or depends, can they do better? It depends on what they're going for, what their career goals are. If, this is a, if we're talking about a person who plans to stay at one company for the next 20-odd years, then probably no, unless they're actually able to advance the, uh, the messaging architecture at that company, bring in new features, make significant changes that require more knowledge than they've got at the moment. However, just a quick show of hands, how many of you have been at your previous com- the company you're at right now more than 20 years? Okay. Roughly a room of about 45 people and two people raise their hands. How many of you are in your current position and have been there for less than four years? Okay. Roughly about 10 people of the 45 in the room. So you can see that positions change, the needs of the companies change. So making sure that you have a skill set that's, that's portable and you can take from one company to another and not have to worry about, oh gosh, I, I don't know what to do. This, this company uses OA. I've never done OA before. I don't know what to do. Hmm. I think the, the need for an overall consistent level of knowledge across all the different parts is extremely important. And I do want to put in a plug for my friend Paul Robichaud, who's not on the panel, but from the audience. He brought up unified messaging before, and a lot of people forget the unified messaging is indeed part of messaging. It's part of Exchange Server 2007, 10, and 13. Just wanted to point that out. Brilliant. Did, did Cheers, Paul, Paul actually pay you for that ad? No, you really? no. We're going to put product placement Paul for Paul Robichaud. <laughs> no, I, I, but anyway, let's meet the people forget you can messaging. Yeah, no, Paul has never forgotten unified messaging, but it's a single-person cr- crusade. <laughs> so, but what I'm more interested in the, the this point here that is the product is becomes more complex all the time. So, if as the product um, evolves, as new features go into it, and as new areas open up, and we just talked about hybrid connectivity, we talked about directory synchronization, identity management, security, and all that sort of good stuff. Um, How do people actually get trained these days? How do people actually keep up to date? I mean, is it enough to go to a conference? No, that's just one part of it. Okay, Conference, book, self-study, lab learning, instructor-led learning remotely, training courses, the whole gamut. Well, yeah, I mean, we can talk about TechNet subscriptions, for example, and what replaces that. <laughs> That'll be edited out, too. <laughs> I thought, was it, was, it, was a cat being strangled down in the back of the room? <laughs> really, in most parts of the world, it's enough to put them in a bag and dump them in the nearest oh, river. Right? So <laughs> first it's exchange admins, and now it's cats. <laughs> no, I mean, somebody's strangling one down the back of the room. <laughs> Sorry, Redmond, cat killer. <laughs> Security, can you come down to Tradewinds? <laughs> Steve, can you take control of this panel, please? Yeah, so what, what does a top-level certification for exchange, what should that look like? Uh, there's, there's no MCM. I don't want to go over that. You can listen Thank to you. the previous episode of our podcast where we had uh, 
MCMs talk about their feelings about it. But going forward, I want to I, I be able to say, apart from being an MVP, I want to have a reason to say I'm better than just an MCSE. Uh, what do I need to learn? You know, if I can't have a TechNet subscription, then how do I get access to those products? What, how do I prove that I'm good at it? Quite an interesting question. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll swing towards Greg. Who's struggling with words at the moment? The reason why probably they're looking at me, because I, so for those of you that didn't know, I used to run the MCM program for Exchange. Uh, I went through the MCM, or Ranger program as it was known, with John, actually, in the same delivery some many years ago. And then I ran the program for a while, and I uh, ran it until two or three years ago when I moved over to the exchange team. And so, you know, with you know the, the, the announcements from MSL recently, it's, you know, I'm as, um, you know, uh, I guess uh, impacted by it as, as many others are. I think, though there is, I would agree, I think there is still a need for a high level of training. The, the impact, what's interesting, I think, it's not just training the individuals, it's the impact the individuals have. Right? This is kind of another way I like to think about it, which is that an MCP exam, um, which an individual takes, and I'm sure most people here probably all have taken an MCP exam at some point, and most people who take an MCP exam, and I know the first one I did, I think, implementing Windows 95 or something, I, I at the time had the influence over exactly one other user, you know, my wife at home probably, something like that. And so the impact that a, a typical M MCP has is relatively small. Sure, they work in companies. They impact hundreds, maybe some, some thousands of seats. An MCM, somebody who went through MCM, they typically work with 10,000 seat-plus customers up to hundreds of thousands of seats. And so the, the knock-on effect of, of advanced levels of training is, is much greater, but of course you have a much smaller pool of people that you can train at that level because there's many obstacles to running a program like that. And really I think, you know, so I, I would answer the question absolutely yes, there's a need for an advanced level of training. I think it has a great fan-out effect on the industry and the technology adoption, but the difficulty is it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, you're, I, I think you're spot on there. It's also, if I can jump in, let's also be clear what that would look like. We're not just talking about teaching you more of more DAG. How much more information about DAG can you really get? It's not just about the technical information. It's about understanding when you use the, or how you actually use the technology. What's the right way to do a DAG in this situation? What's the right way to do a DAG in that situation? It's understanding the whys and the why nots. Sometimes it's, it's about when not to do it rather than when to do it. And that's the sort of thing that gets built into the, the truly highest level. And, you know, one of the benefits, I'm not sure this really goes to where Steve's question was, but, um, you know, but heck, we're off, we're off on off piece now, right? But, I mean, the, one of the, the great things about that kind of advanced training was the peer um, learning. Because the, the guy at the front of the room, you know, and, and John was an instructor and I used to teach too, and, you know, they, they know a lot about their areas of expertise. But what was interesting was I, I used to, when I would run it, sometimes say to the class, you know, I, I have X number of years, 15 years of experience doing this. But when you add up the collective experience of all the people in the room, it dwarfs my own, obviously, right? And so 
the candidates, the students, would learn from each other. They'd all experience things. And the ability to learn as a group is not to be underestimated. So you know, it really added some value to the whole classroom. So you've, you've really painted a very good, very positive picture for that, that level of training. Yes. Uh, one that I agree with. But I think but times have changed, too. Exactly. Ex- <laughs> ex- exactly. You're, you're taking the words out of my mouth. MCM was a product of its time. Yeah. And the barriers, the significant barriers that exist in terms of the cost yeah. and the time that's required both to prepare, mm-hmm. to then do the rotation, yeah. and then do the testing afterwards is just very, very, very significant. Agreed. It's okay if you have a major corporation behind you who will give you the time to do it and all the rest of it, pay your travel expenses, pay the hotel bills in Redmond and all the rest of it. But, you know, I would say that most of the people in this room would, would struggle enormously if they went to their manager and say, please let me go for six weeks to do exchange training. And by the way, you're picking up the bill and there's a 36,000 or whatever bill from, 36,000 bill from Microsoft to go with it. So those are the issues. And, and I think... Sure. I think even though your numbers are all wrong, but those yeah. Are- <laughs> okay. Hey, you know, I'm a consultant. I make numbers up on the fly. That's the way, that's the way the business goes. But the, Remember the real- that when you read Tony's book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't start. Don't start. Don't start. But so here, here's here's the question then: Is it possible to get the majority of the goodness that you saw in MCM? by taking away some of those barriers. And that means that you have to do it at a reduced cost. Right. You have to do it in less time. Yeah. But more importantly, I think you have to get more people through it. Is that, is that possible? Uh, I, I think so. I think in some ways it's possible. I think um, you're right. I mean, scale, scale is the challenge with the program. And, and there's several dimensions to that. There's, there's the cost, for sure. Not as expensive, as, as you said, and, and not as long. Because that, but it, when I went through, it was six weeks long, right? And it was, you know, horrendous. It was, although also, the six most rewarding re- weeks of my professional career, probably, realistically speaking. But, but, um, but the barrier to entry, and particularly in other markets too. I mean, you know, people coming from parts of the world where, where the the, the relative cost to them, yes, in U.S. dollars, is is the same as buying a house. Yes. I mean, it's quite an astonishing commitment that some people take to do it. So those barriers are huge. There's also the barrier of, of entry to the knowledge, the prerequisite knowledge to be able to go. And, the, and can you consume the level of knowledge that will be delivered? And, and I was amazed when I went, you know, how much more I didn't know, how much I didn't know from, from the first 30 minutes on day one, I think. And so you have to deal with these. So I guess as you can look at it, you know, let's figure it out right now. I mean, you, you have to have to make it more consumable, which really means making it more, well, making it less complex, less difficult, perhaps. You have to take out some of the topest, topest, that's a great word, edit that one out, Steve, right? Some of the the highest level of um, technical detail, which is, I would argue, informational rather than useful. Background. Right? Strong background. Yeah, it's great to have a, the, the, the real understanding of how something really works. But ultimately, if you can't influence, change, or adapt it, or do something with it, it's great to know, but could we document that rather than deliver it in a training room? Right, right, right. right. Okay? We could do that. That also then expands the pool of instructors that could potentially teach the right. content rather than a handful of people in the world. Like the stuff John Rowe teaches is, um, you know, there's... 
past tense. John t- taught. Um, a handful of the people in the world could teach that stuff. And so you can't clone him, and frankly, you wouldn't want to looking at him. But um, <laughs> he missed that one, right? No, no, he got it. <laughs> so it, it just took time to think. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, and, and so if we, if argument's sake, let's say we made it simpler and we made it... Um, you can do all of that and you can train more people, but one of the other angles that we're missing, though, is the, is the recognition that people would get out the back of it. Right. If you, to make a certification is really hard. To do a certification is, well, A, expensive, and B, really hard, actually, having done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prove that, right? But, but, it, but let me ask it then a follow-up question. Is, is it Microsoft's responsibility to provide this type of thing, or is this something that you see the community should be using? Good question. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's our technology, for sure. Um, so you'd be involved. We would. Is it is it a case of being directly involved or the sponsor? I guess that's the way of 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 pushing it. I I don't know. I don't, I think either could work. I mean, I mm. I think you know I think brutally, honestly, I don't think anyone better to teach our technology than us. We know it better than anyone. Oh, yeah, but that's at the 100% level. I'm saying if you brought it back to the 80% level. Um, then I think it becomes more accessible, and as long as people are doing a good job. I mean, training companies, you know, in the business of training. Yeah. We're in the business of software, yeah. or devices and services. Devices and services. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it's okay, but, he's not listening. But, um, you know, the, the uh, training company... So here's my... Back when I got into kind of IT and, and, and started into consulting, I met this guy who was an MCT who had 14 MCP exams and had never sat in front of an NT4 server for which he was, you know, oh, had like... Eminently qualified. Right. He had all these exams and he was, he was a teacher. He didn't have any practical experience whatsoever. And so I would, I, I, I'm not sure that in itself is the kind of educator we need right. to help teach technology. I think you need more. Thank you very much. That was more detail than I was expecting. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, sorry. sorry. We're just having a good chat here. Uh, So, yeah, we do tend to rattle on a little bit on subjects sometimes. Well, if we had had a strong comp here, you know, we might stay on track. (laughs) Well, I don't want to butt in when Greg Taylor or Tony's talking, so... uh, So, uh, you guys, he wants to butt in when... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, So, how many in the room here look after, administer and patch exchange? Many... Oh, do you? What do the rest of you do? SQL. <laughs> no, the SharePoint function. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing some of you might have have seen is the product quality patches. Uh, do you do you look forward to patching Exchange? Do you think it might break things? How many of you actually do patch your Exchange servers in line with Microsoft's release cadence? How many do you go? Okay, so we've got one, two hands, three hands. Right hand four. Yeah. We four? So four, ten, five? five? Ten percent. Yeah, so roughly ten percent of the room. So what do the rest of you do? Do you wait, patch them every three months, every six months? Do you not patch them at all? You just install the server, call it a day? Just out of interest, who doesn't patch his exchange servers? Or her. Or her, yeah. Can't be sexist. Right. I'm sorry. One or two patch cycles or patches individually? So for those listening at home, the desire is to keep one or two patch levels behind. 
Yeah, and that seems consistent with, with what I see, especially when some customers are still on service pack one for Exchange 2010. It's far in advance. <laughs> yeah. That's what I typically see. And I'm in a support organization where I'm on site with customers every week. Yeah. They're typically months behind. And some of that some of that fear comes down to the, the product quality. It's not new that there's uh, been some bugs in update rollups, cumulative updates. Is Exchange a victim of its own success? It's pretty much taken most of the market. We don't see many notes in stalls anymore. Uh, is that the wide and varied deployments of Exchange the reason why it's so hard to ta- test, or is there something fundamentally wrong? Microsoft. Anyone who want a short, snappy answer? What? Yeah. 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 So l- l- I'll, let me. Yeah, I'll, try and, I'll try and take some of the Microsoft guys off that particular hook. You know, you because seconds. No, I wasn't expecting. No, 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 no. Let's see. First thing, it's important to realise that all software has bugs. There isn't any software except maybe the stuff that went to the uh, Apollo Eleven to the moon. Didn't have bugs. So all software has bugs. Exchange has bugs. Windows has bugs. It has bugs. Get over it. The next thing is that anybody who installs a roll-up update or a cumulative update for Exchange without testing is a fool. Get over that. So we're down to the point of, you know, hey, okay, Exchange is going to put out these patches, these roll-up releases, cumulative releases or whatever. What am I going to do with them? Well, I think it, it makes eminent sense to figure out how you are going to test it, to test the new software, how you're going to test it in an environment that mimics your production environment, how you're going to make sure that everything works for you, and you're going to use that as the basis for deployment. When you're ready, when you're happy, and when you've let all the other people out there in the industry test it for you. And I've read all the blogs to find all the problems. That's the way I recommend people do it. And for the product group, is is the wide, varied deployments of any shape, any type, any guide that they've used to implement it part of the reason why it's harder to find these problems before they're in production? Well, um, it, it absolutely, absolutely sure. contributes. There's no question about that. Exchange is a, an incredibly complex product, and it's incredibly hard to test. There's no question about that. Um, and and if, it was, you know, if it was a very locked-down product with one way to deploy it, one way to manage it, one way to operate it, yeah, absolutely. It would be way easier to test. Uh, and, and, you'd, and you'd have to say PowerShell. Because you don't want everybody messing with me. That, you'd, well, <laughs> you still need a way to you know, add users oh. and manage mailboxes. You know but you guys were made for? <laughs> well, we took, we took build-to-build upgrades on yeah. Exchange. Right. You, couldn't, you can't just take a server that has 2007 on it and put yeah. 2013 on it. We took that out because of the difficulty testing each and every scenario with each and every third-party product and each and every combination of roles. Well, well, was that the reason why? I thought the reason why there was because you had this little small uh, problem called 32-bit to 64-bit operating system upgrade as well. From 2007 to 2013? No, up to 2007. That's when that was taken out. The B2B was taken out, right? Isn't that the reason why? It may have been a factor, yes. A large factor. But also it was taken out because of the testing harness. Because each upgrade, each method increases your testing. In, in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Exponentially. Exponentially. Thank you. I just want to point out this is the native English speaker taking uh, English lessons from the like fourth language, right? <laughs> so, and thank you, Michael, You're my friend. It increases the testing harness exponentially when you have to take all of these into account. Sure. So... 
we can't test every single scenario. It's impossible. And again, I'm in the support organization, so I work with customers every day, and I see some of the, the challenges that they have. To Tony's point about testing, I, I agree. Customers should test in their environment. The answers I usually hear back from customers, and tell me how many of these ring, ring true for you. I have too many responsibilities to do, do the testing. Does that sound right? Yeah. yeah. We don't have a representative test lab in which to do the testing, right? I'm seeing a couple of knowing nods and winks. Those are two of the biggest ones. And then there's also the lack of an understanding of actually how to comprehensively test. How many of you have fully scalable automated test harnesses that can test every single thing that end users do? A rousing show of no hands. Nobody right? does, John. Yeah, nobody, nobody does. Yeah, that's, nobody that's, does. That's, that's, right? impra- that's impractical. Nobody does. No, no, what I'm saying is that customers lack some of the things that we have. And oh, so yeah. they turn around and they say, we don't have that. Microsoft, you should test everything. And it's an unrealistic But that, that's, impo- that's impossible. It's impossible both for Microsoft to test everything. And it's impossible to expect the customers are going to have an automated test harness. what I just said. If you right. had been talking over me, but they would have heard it. Well, that's inter- no. it's, interesting to, it's interesting to see that um, you, know, you can't test every scenario. That's, that's, uh, that's true. But do you feel that you t- don't test enough scenarios? Maybe. So, do, do, I, th- I think it's clear we need to do a better job. I think, absolutely. I agree with Jeff. We need to do a better job. And I think we certainly have, with the, 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 the change in the way we've serviced the product and the, the, the change in the way we're doing updates, um, I think we've certainly seen uh, we've seen some things as a consequence of it, and, and these are the kind of things that we're talking about are as a consequence. So, so we are actively uh, working as a team to figure out how we can prevent thing, you know, the situations that we've had recently prevent them from happening again. I mean, we don't want them, right? We want our customers to be to be happy with installing our product and, and not have issues. I mean, that is absolutely the primary goal but it's incredibly hard to do mm. and we're, we're you know we've had some you know some lessons to learn more recently than uh, you know th- you know certainly more frequently recently than, than before um, and I can guarantee you that we're definitely taking some steps to see what we can do about it but as we've, we said we go back to the same point again hugely complex product hugely varied way of deploying it in hugely varied environments that our customers have, and so, and so I completely echo what the guys have said. You know, some to some degree of due diligence and testing, you know, into your environment is actually the right thing to do. Do I think you should? Like, I've seen projects stalled for ten weeks while a bunch of guys do what they call integration testing, which really doesn't amount to anything. So, Greg, I, I, I have enormous sympathy but with you. Keep, have to keep moving forward. I, I have enormous sympathy with you because it is terribly complex uh, but I think one of the issues that we face is that some of the bugs that come everybody will forgive you for a bug that's buried deep and yep. complex but when it's something that's discovered within four minutes of installing yeah. that's the problem oh no kidding like MS 13061 was a freaking disaster yeah so and now we're we're very well aware of that and, and yep. you know, hold our hands up and say, yeah, absolutely, yep. we screwed up and we're doing our best to resolve it. And we really are. I mean, the, the customers being... We, we've, we've had a number of, you know, a long record of, of being successful with updates and patches yeah. and service packs. And the road has been rocky recently. And we want to get back on track to where we were. There's no question. And we all hope you do. Yeah, we do too. 
So, do you have a show of hands for anyone in the room that uses Amazon Web Services or, or Windows Azure for virtual machines? Is anyone trying it out? One. What, one back there. Uh, I'm seeing a slow growth in customers that are starting to use it. And uh, especially in the context of virtualization, virtual machines and exchange, uh, Amazon have uh, released a guide on how to implement exchange in Amazon Web Services. Have you guys seen that? Uh, yeah, we absolutely have seen that. Did you work closely with Amazon to build that guide? No. <laughs> in a word. Um, yeah, they, uh, Amazon is absolutely um, uh, documenting how it is possible to deploy Exchange on AWS. Um, and, you know, that, that certainly has been an option for quite some time um, as public cloud providers have made, a, made available in infrastructures of service. And, you know, they're, they're effectively providing uh, the same type of virtual machine infrastructure that you would have in a private cloud in your own environment. Um, but there are additional considerations and concerns that, that come into play. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that, you know, this is an area that I'm spending a fair amount of my time on right now, uh, trying to figure out best practices and what, what we should be encouraging our customers to do and, and, and think about in this space. And there's a couple of things that, that really kind of keep me up at night. One of them is supportability. Um, and I think that there's not a lot of great information out there today in terms of, of supportability and, and how that actually works. Mm. Um, I'm concerned about that for two reasons, one of, one of which is that I want to make sure that customers understand what they're getting into when they, when they make the decision to go down that path. And the other is I want our support engineers at Microsoft to understand um, you know, how, best practices, to understand what is and is not supportable in, in that type of deployment. Um, so when you think about AWS, it's, it's effectively virtual infrastructure. We have published documentation that says if you're deploying Exchange on a virtual platform, the hypervisor has to be on the, uh, the Windows SVVP list. Um, uh, and that actually defines Windows supportability and Exchange supportability. So we need to, you know, customers need to make sure that uh, they're going to be in that, in that state uh, with whatever provider they choose. And if they're not, they need to understand that if something goes wrong, it may be a little bit of a rocky road to get the problem resolved. Um, that's it. Who owns support at that stage? So, is, it, is it Amazon owned support? <laughs> it's an excellent question. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that, that Microsoft support does a fantastic job of um, doing whatever they can to resolve a problem. Hmm. Uh, you know, th there's a, an, an expectation that Microsoft is going to provide some, some best effort support, even in scenarios that aren't technically fully supported. But uh, you know, we've always had the caveat that when you deploy in an unsupported way, if Microsoft support can't make progress on resolving that issue, they may ask you to reproduce the problem in a totally supported deployment. If you've made the choice to move into the public cloud and all of your infrastructure is in the public cloud and you're in, you know, you, you have the potential to be in an unsupported type of infrastructure, that's a, that's a hard pill to swallow to then have to go build out Exchange 2013 or some, you know, whatever version you're using on-prem potentially move some users so that you can reproduce the problem and then make progress. So you're I, I'm, I'm not saying that's... going back to 10 years, to the way we were, when, you know, when VMware was yes. coming out first in Exchange 2003. Essentially, okay. yeah. So that's, that's not a great place to be, obviously. No, we need no. to figure out a better story there. But, you know, that, that's a huge concern. The other thing that worries me is around the guidance that we have for virtualization uh, with Exchange, Exchange is very resource-hungry. It needs... Uh, 
efficient access to what you would think of as hardware resources. In a public cloud, it's to the public cloud vendor's advantage to be able to share those, those resources, right? That's how they're making their money, uh, by essentially overcommitting resources. And you add a whole bunch of additional complexity in terms of where those resources live. Is your public cloud provider going to tell you you know how how machines how virtual machines are separated and and how uh, you can be sure that disaster recovery will work if one of those data centers goes out. Um, there's just all these additional complexities that you need to consider that don't really come into uh, come into your mind when you think about the idea of just outsourcing everything to the cloud and somebody else has to worry about it. You now have some additional things that you have have to worry about that you may not have had to previously. So it, it's a it's a an interesting place to be. Um, and is it going to be even more interesting as Microsoft figures out how to do it on Azure? Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're very clear today on, um, on, on TechNet that we don't support Exchange on, on Azure. Um, that's absolutely stated and, and has been since we released, um, uh, well, since uh, Azure Virtual Machines uh, became available uh, commercially. Um, that's obviously a, you know, something we'd, we need to... Uh, uh, it's an area of investigation. Yeah, we'll put it that way. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right, uh, we've only got 10 minutes left. Uh, so this is the chance where you guys can uh, possibly grab a copy of one of the books we've got to give away. Uh, if you've got a question for someone up on the panel. Uh, so uh, do we have any questions? Come on, don't be shy. There you There's go. Three right. books. <laughs> oh, fame. You're on a UC Architects podcast. We're sort of one of those odd, we're an EDU institution. And so we're early hybrid adopters, sort of. Uh, we have Office 365, about 27,000 accounts out in the cloud. Those are just our students. All of our faculty and staff are internal. They're on Exchange Local, Link Local. We have uh, classes we're actually teaching using Link. We really want to get that into a hybrid environment, but... Because we were an early adopter of the cloud, they aren't in our actual AD structure. They have their own domain. How a lot of schools are that way, too, is that they're, they want to go hybrid really bad. But because they put their students out in the cloud early, they aren't actually part of their domain. They're separate. How do you bring them back in? That must be you, Steve. That's your, that's your <laughs> yeah. business, huh? Yeah. Uh, see, my answer to that is you're going to have to bring those objects on premise. So... You should have come to my session earlier. Because <laughs> uh, a, a lot of the experiences from that That's come from education organizations. Uh, so if you want, afterwards we could have a, a chat as well to follow that up. Uh, but you've got to think about what Dursink is going to do. You want to try and make sure that you bring the, the, the right amount of information back on premise. So when you do start with your hybrid deployment, when you run Dursink, it's not going to remove attributes from those students. And then you should be in a position where you can uh, run the hybrid configuration wizard. Uh, but there's, there, are, there is some, it's, it's not easy. And there's going to be some live at Edu deployments as well, where they've built their own hybrid, and they've got to then turn it back into a supported hybrid going forward. Uh, do you get any support cases go that far to, to you guys? Or is there, there are certainly extremely large educational institutions that have run into issues around, around identity that we've, in, that we've yeah. had to deal with. Absolutely. Uh, and and, it's, and, it's and in some cases, there's a bunch of custom stuff that we have to go figure out with, with yeah. the implementations to, to get it working. It's so amazing. did you start with Live Edu and then... We, we were 
were actually before live detection. So exchange lineups. Yeah. And so we were exchange lineups. Um, our migration was supposed to be 17 hours to three weeks to get to Office 365 uh, with consultants. Um, we did a single sign-on originally, so we were doing the token-based single sign-on. Yeah. Um, because we're single sign-on, um, we were like, okay, we looked at ADFS and we looked at Dersync and we went, we have two domains, we can't. What are our other options? Um, and then with 27,000 accounts, originally it was 75,000, I did a major purge to get us back down. Basically, I killed the alumni. Um, <laughs> and so that we actually made it a manageable number of users to work with. But because we were in that state, all of a sudden we're like, okay, we want to do single sign-on. It's part of our SharePoint environment. What are our options? And then luckily you guys came through at the last hour in June and continued single sign-on for at least till December 2014. But now we're looking at, okay, we have a hard window of December 2014 to get a hybrid environment put together. But how do we get from here to there and keep our users happy? Um, and also yeah. Link is one. We're actually teaching classes using Link. So we're sort of doing something that other people aren't doing with Link. We really like it. It's really sort of an interesting environment to work with, but ideally we want to have it so that it's truly hybrid rather than federated because that makes it a lot harder to work with. So it sounds like, Steve, you've got a bit of a, bit of a yeah, job there. Yeah, we're going to have to have a chat uh, today and tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, maybe we can draw something out and uh, give you some ideas at least. Okay. Anybody else? That, that wins a book, by the way. Yeah. Absolutely That wins was a, a book. great question. Stumped the entire panel. Yeah. Anybody else? There's a book in it for you. Do we really have to start throwing books? <laughs> really? You're going to have to. Nobody <laughs> wants one? There's a give away your books? <laughs> I had a question. Um, so we recently pushed out uh, Office 2013, um, got a group piloting 365 kind of noticed that some of the applications in Office 2013 have to have um, a live service account opposed to a 365 account. Why is that? It doesn't appear that Microsoft has a direction with that quite yet. Or I, I'm not sure what's the... I don't know. I don't know what I'm asking. I guess, like, what... Why, why are they not allowing 365 users to use those services? I think that's well, a question for Microsoft, right? <laughs> All right, so I mean, the, the, there's the consumer Live ID service, if you like, and the Office 365 ID service, so, and they are separate. And there was, definitely has been some confusion in the past as the separation between the two. I'm not familiar with the specific features in, well, in Alex I guess 2013 that you mean. Example would be like, um, if you're trying to go to the App Store in Excel, um, you can use the plug-in apps or whatever. And if you try to go out to the store, you know, it pop, prompts you to log in, and, it's, and it, you put in your email address, and well, it says, oh, this account doesn't work. Right. That's that my 365 account. 365 account. Yeah, I'd have to put okay. my live account in opposed to my corporate yeah, I, I think there's there's a few different areas. So there's SkyDrive Sky integration certainly that's going to use your uh, your live account rather than your um, your organizational account or your Office 365 account. I, off the top of my head, I think the office.microsoft.com site where a lot of the things are that you're referring to uh, uses that that consumer or that that live identity service, and that's you know kind of kind of by design. Don't know whether or not there's a plan at some point in the future to to integrate those, but I. Completely agree. I mean, I have 
personally the same identity yeah. uh, as a, a live identity and an, an org organizational identity. Totally different passwords, totally different you know, time frames yeah. for needing to reset things. <coughs> Gets very confusing very fast. Well, like OneNote, too, is another example um, with like my corporate and personal. I want to sync my, I want to have my corporate OneNote and um, you have to actually log in first with your live and then you can add a 365 after that. You can add it to that account, which is that's how I'm not sure if they're quite clear yeah, where feedback. they're going with that. So and it sounds like feedback. Great you feedback. Take. Yeah, it's great feedback, but there's yeah. still some work to do. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And you will get a book. Yeah, I think we've got it was one of the backs. Time for one more question. Yeah, I just had a question about um, what is um, Microsoft's direction for secure mail? We, we just purchased Voltage Secure Mail to assist some of our law enforcement agencies and some other sensitive areas for, you know, it, it, it was kind of a complicated process installing it. It involved a Linux server, and it, it, it's a good, seamless solution. But uh, what, what direction is uh, Microsoft going on that? Are they going to do something more to enhance the security of the, the email so when you say secure mail, what, what do you mean more specifically? Um, basically, it's uh, identity-based encryption. Um, and you, you basically put up another mail system, uh, basically, so that when you send it to someone, they have to hit a link and log into the system so that it's fully encrypted. It's TLS encrypted back to the website, and then it's identity-based encrypted uh, uh, transmission between uh, the, the sender and the, the receiver. So... Um, it, it's, it's becoming very difficult to identify legitimate mails with all of the spoof, spoofing going on and all of the, the you know, fake emails. Uh, a lot of law enforcement people send us emails and ask us, is this a real mail message or, you know, where did it come from? And um, It's just it's really getting quite confusing. Um, I was just wondering if uh, they're going to do more to do any kind of identity-based encryption embedded in Exchange or uh, anything like that. I mean, we certainly have S-MIME functionality today. And, you know, as you're describing what basically the scenario that you're trying to take advantage of, S-MIME kind of pops into my head as a solution. Now, clearly it's not necessarily the perfect solution for what you're trying to do, but it's it's there and has been for a while. Um, ADRMS? Yeah. Well, yeah, and Azure, I mean, Azure RMS as well. Huh? Azure uh, RMS as well, which is kind of similar to what you're asking for, where it's not only just Outlook clients, but has third-party apps that can download and view encrypted mails. I think there, there are a lot of new features coming in the ADRMS space, um, both in ADRMS on-premises and uh, Azure, where you can have a lot of the features that you just described. So uh, the identity-based encryption uh, basically is what RMS does. Um, and what RMS didn't do before quite well is actually share that with external people. Yeah. As long as it is within your own organization, it was pretty good. And um, there are some changes coming, um, which have been announced a few months ago and have been and are public. There is a beta that you can actually work with, um, which will allow you to explore that and allow you to share even RMS encrypted data with external people where they have to log in into a website. I even think so. So uh, I'd say yes, there is some changes coming, but maybe... No, that's, that's the answer I was going to give. That's the answer, absolutely. I mean, this, this problem has been around for ages. This problem has been around since the dawn of email. How do, you, how do you make sure that a message that you receive can absolutely positively be tied back to, to the sender? 
And uh, the particular solution that you described, I was just having a little chuckle to myself because this is kind of a classic late 1990s solution that was going around then. Uh, I think tens, if not hundreds, of companies have gone down this road. And the problem, quite frankly, with all of those solutions is that sooner or later those companies go out of business because there isn't enough business. There isn't enough people looking for that kind of functionality that you've just described. And the reason why I was thinking to myself, well, maybe this, this, this Azure-based uh, RMS or AD like RMS is, would, help, would be helpful is that, firstly, it's a cloud-based service. And secondly, Microsoft is behind it. So these guys aren't going to go out of business anytime soon. I mean, they're getting a new CEO, so everything's happiness and light. You know, so that, that is something I would definitely go and investigate. So uh, anything to add from Microsoft on that? Or have we put him Only the, it for the record, uh, Tony said that was since the beginning of email, and he knows that for a fact because he was actually there at the yeah. birth of email. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, uh, so we're just over time. Uh, so I'm going to wrap up now. Thank you. First of all, to a wonderful audience for listening all the way through us rambling along. Uh, Very much appreciate your attendance. Uh, And hopefully you'll download the podcast and listen again. Uh, Or share it with your friends. With all the the stuff beeped out. Yeah, yeah. It it might might be shorter. (laughs) (laughs) We we can do swearing in our podcasts. Uh, And I'd like to thank uh, my my panel as well for joining me today. It's very much appreciated. The UC Architects are online, so you can visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com and there's links uh, to all our previous shows uh, and you can download those uh, via our app coded by Johan here for Windows Phone or uh, download it via iTunes uh, or your favourite RSS reader. So we'll be back uh, in two weeks' time uh, with Pat Hosting. Pat Richard is a Link MVP, so if you like Link stuff, you'll hear lots more Link stuff on that episode. Thanks very much.